0: Hey, church family, welcome to another chance to be together online and spend some time worshiping our Lord. Beautiful start to the summer and a wonderful time to celebrate our King. Let's join in together.
1: the grave, you free every captive and break every chain. Oh God, you have done great. faithfully sing His wonderful love, our shield and defender
2: worship team for leading us and thank you so much for joining us online. We hope and pray that our time together is just a blessing for you each week. Well, as always, we as a staff, we love praying for you. We actually find it a privilege to be able to pray for you throughout the week Uh, and you could text your confidential prayer requests uh, to 97,000. You can text them now, tomorrow, throughout the week. Uh, We find it, again, uh, just an honor to be able to Partner with you in prayer. So send those to 97,000. Well, we have a lot going on at Agora Bible Fellowship. And and if you're interested at all in finding out more information about our weekly happenings or our various ministries, our website is a fantastic place to start. And you can visit us anytime at agorabible.org. And lastly, our ongoing uh, ministry is, uh, is possible through your generous financial support, and uh, we would be so grateful if you would consider uh, preferably uh, making a donation. And you can do that on our websites under the Give tab. Well, before we dive into God's word, let us pray. Well, Father, we thank you so much for this church. We thank you for our ministry, Lord, and we thank you that uh, you're a faithful God. And we just pray, Lord, that over the next few minutes, Lord, that uh, you just speak to us, that you uh, open our ears and our eyes in this passage, and that uh, you nudge us uh, to what you want us to get out of it, Lord. We thank you so much for who you are, and uh, to your name we pray, amen.
0: Well, thank you, worship team, and uh, thank you, Chris, for setting up this time. I want to invite you uh, to join us. We're working through, as you know, the book of Hebrews. And we're starting this week in chapter 9, going through uh, verses 1 through 10. And so if you're looking at that, it's always helpful. And uh, I've titled this message, Responding to Guilt. Now, I use that phrase or that expression, responding to guilt, assuming that there is guilt. And sometimes, I don't know if you notice this too, when you look around in our culture, it almost seems like guilt is a thing of the, the past, whether it's the The degree of of boasting about just people's uh, life of uh, debauchery, like really, you don't have to look very far to where it seems like, man, guilt is not really much of a thing. Whether it's the lyrics of a current uh, popular song on the radio, whether it's a TV interview with a celebrity, it just seems like people kind of bask in their guilt-free living, you would assume We especially see that as it relates to some of the things that people laugh about nowadays. I know that's kind of a strange thing to bring up, but I was especially introduced to that a a season back, my wife and I, after visiting Israel, we had met this guy, he was a youth pastor, and so he invited us, it's kind of a cool thing, he had invited us because he was taking opportunity in different stand-up comedy routines, and so he invited us to go to one of his uh, shows. And so we're like, hey, that should be a a fun time out. We went with a few different couples uh, to this event. I remember just being so embarrassed by the content, not his content, but the different people that were leading up to him and following him. I So uh, that evening talked about, man, I just wish I had waited in the lobby, just embarrassed where it doesn't seem like anything causes anybody to blush anymore. No, nobody's embarrassed by things, and it, it's this, this, this guilt-free existence, but it's interesting because where it seems like that from the outside, really, I would suggest, and really where I'm moving this conversation to, is it's the act, exact opposite of reality. Despite the persona of living guilt-free, that's not the case at all. In fact, it's kind of surprising in our fundamentally irreligious society, most people or many people really deal with really deep levels and deep degrees of guilt. You talk to any uh, counselor about this and they'll uh, affirm what I'm saying here is that people are really struggled, struggling with and trying to wrestle through the guilt in their life, past decisions, current decisions, things they're entangled in. Guilt is a real part of our existence. And I would propose that guilt is actually biblical. You're like, well, what do you mean biblical? It sounds like a, a negative thing. But truth be told, guilt is this. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So every single person on this planet is determined to be guilty. So the feelings that they have of guilt and shame are actually accurate. They, they represent reality of what's going on where they are guilty before a perfect God. But here's the intention of guilt. Guilt is intended to move us towards, to push us towards some kind of a solution, some kind of of a resolve. And what we learn in Scripture is that the only solution to our guilt, the deep-rooted stuff that we all live with and deal with, is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. That's the the only solution for guilt. I know that sounds like the church answer, but that is the answer for our guilt. It's interesting as we think of our author, as he's writing to this audience, he's trying to to deal with a, a group of people that had spent so many years, generation after generation under the old covenant and never really having their guilt dealt with. And so they're having a hard time of uh, adjusting to this new way of living, this new way of living under the covenant, which was intended to be a life absent of guilt, absent of shame. If any guilt, it's only moving us to repentance and to celebrating the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So he's trying to push them to change in the way that they interact with God. And before we're too hard with the people, the audience here, recognize how hard it is for us to change. I mean, even silly stuff like new trash cans at Thousand Oaks, I'm having a hard time adjusting to. It's even the, imagine the bigger stuff, like how you relate with Almighty God. That's what they're being pushed to rethink and to uh, readjust their uh, way and approach of dealing with sin. Let me just pray before we explore this fairly intense section of scripture. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that scripture speaks to everything that we're facing in this life. Definitely, I got to believe that the audience now, that that's a a guilt is a real issue in their life. Things that the regrets, things they wish they could do differently and how they respond to it. And I thank you that your word speaks to even that today. And we ask that you teach us that this wouldn't just be a exercise in uh, learning about the Jewish uh, temple and the tabernacle, and, and it would be moving us towards how it relates to us, God. And so we invite your spirit to speak to us specifically in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, well, we're starting uh, just in verse one of chapter nine, just going to start beginning with the first couple of verses before some explanation it says, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence it is called the holy place now upon reading this at first you're just like man what what is this talking about what tent is this referring to my hope is for you to realize that today's a little bit more educational. When I was thinking back over my nine years here teaching at this church, I'm like, man, I haven't really spent any time talking about uh, the tabernacle and what the sacrificial system looked like back then. And so we're gonna we're gonna dive a, a bit into that, and so uh, hopefully put on your thinking cap here uh, today in this section. But the tent that it's talking about was actually the tabernacle. And you're like, well, that doesn't necessarily help me much. What's a tabernacle? Basically, a tabernacle was a traveling place of worship, something that was set up for worship. Remember, when the the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, they had 40 years in the wilderness, and so God established for them what worship should look like in the wilderness. You can see a picture here of what that tabernacle looks like. Basically, it was a portable worship center, if you will. John MacArthur points out something interesting, though, about this tabernacle, that God only designated two chapters in Scripture to describe all of creation, but 50 chapters to describe this tabernacle. So this tabernacle must have something important about it. Every single detail about this tabernacle was given by God on Mount Sinai to Moses and they perfectly executed it to the T, exactly as he described. You can read about those details if, you're, if you so choose in Exodus chapter 25 through 27 and also in chapter 35 through 40, very detailed about what the tabernacle looked like. Why was the tabernacle such a big deal? Why is it given that much attention? You see, the reason it was given a lot of attention is because it was the temporary provision for them to commune with God while they waited for the permanent solution or provision in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. So this was the the temporary thing that was put in place for them to commune with God. And really, when you start to realize what our heart's deepest desire is, it is to have communion with God. So it's important that God had established that after Adam and Eve had gone their own way and wandered. So it was very specifically set up and had very specific regulations, as we see here, for worship. A covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. It describes this tent as having three sections. Only two are mentioned here, but it had three. Three sections. The first one would be the courtyard. You saw in that picture the outside area uh, that was set up. And then within the courtyard was, uh, were two places. The first place is called the holy place, that would be the larger size of the tent there. And then the second part of that would be the inner part called the most holy place. The author just chooses to really just focus in on the two inside parts of the tent, not really giving a lot of attention or any attention to the courtyard. Or the courtyard, you can see in that picture that was shown that it had a bronze altar for sacrifice and a bronze basin for cleansing. He describes, though, inside the tabernacle in this conversation, the first area that it describes here, describes what's called, you see it right there in verse 2, is called the holy place. This holy place was about 30 feet long, it was about 15 feet wide, and about 15 feet tall. And before you think I'm really smart, and trust me, I leaned heavily into different, uh, different commentaries to, to discover details about this couple other things that are mentioned here is it describes it having a, a lampstand. It's a lampstand you can see even in this second picture here that outlines some of the elements that are inside that uh, inside of the tent. The lampstand was made of solid gold which is pretty kind of a kind of a cool thing a fairly large you can see in the picture there had seven branches and those branches were filled with olive oil And because in that tent, there was no windows in place. And so this lampstand is the only thing that provided any kind of a light. And it represented the picture of, of Christ. All of these things you'll start to discover were representing Jesus Christ in some fashion as the one thing that illuminates the way or direction to God. So if you think about it, kind of a a cool picture of him. The lampstand was kept lit. I thought this was interesting. 24-7. There is at no point that it ever went dark in that space. The second thing that it mentions there in uh, in that holy place is what? It mentions a table and the bread of the presence. The table was kind of another cool piece that was also made out of acacia wood, but it was completely covered and overlaid with gold. Had 12 loaves of sacred bread laid on top of it always. Always on top of this table were 12 loaves of bread. And those 12 loaves of bread represented a couple of things along with this table. First off was God's faithful provision. And then the 12, we hear that number repeated often because you had 12 tribes of Israel, These tents that would have been set up very strategically outside of the temple or the tabernacle were the 12 different uh, tribes of Israel. This table was three feet long, one and a half feet wide, and two and a quarter feet tall. Very specific. Thought it was interesting that that bread didn't sit there forever there though. It was replaced every seven days on the Sabbath. And the old bread would have been eaten by the priests. Now, what's interesting about this area is it represents in this, this picture is it was something that was only uh, that you're only able to go into as a priest. So both of these areas that it's about to describe. First, this holy place, the only access, the only people that had access to this were, were the priests of that time. So they were getting closer because we're about to read about the uh, the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelled or at least the manifestation of that. And they're about to get closer. Now, I don't know if you remember as a kid, we, we played that game hot and cold. And as you got closer to something, you're like getting hotter, getting warmer, getting warmer, getting colder, getting colder. Well, this was about as warm as somebody to, could get to the presence of God, but it wasn't something that... That was invited to all the people. In fact, the average Joe was only allowed to be in the outside courtyard. Couldn't even come inside of the tent. The priest was allowed to go inside of this section, but still outside of God's presence. I'll make give more explanation of that as we progress. All right, so that's first section. Hopefully you're hanging in there okay, got your thinking hat on. So then we're moving on, verse three, to the second section be, described behind the curtain. It says, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which was a golden urn holding the manna an Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant." Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. All right, so little explanation of this. So hopefully you're tracking with it so far. The, the outer section, that was, that was described as the holy place. Now this is the r- real creative with names. This is the most holy place. And this is where you had the presence of God, as described here. And in that holy place, uh, you've maybe even heard of that as the Holy of Holies. It's basically a 15 foot by 15 foot uh, space, kind of like a cube, if you will. And just outside of the veil, going into the Holy of Holies, was the altar of incense. And this altar of incense was made out of acacia wood, and take a guess what it was also made out of. Yes, we see it there. Also made out of gold. All of these uh, these pieces of furnishings very ornate and very uh, precious. It was about one point five feet uh, squared and about three feet tall. So a fairly big altar. Uh, And then the altar of incense was the whole idea that we see later of Jesus representing us before going into the Holy of Holies. So his representation, his interceding, we talked about earlier in the book of Hebrews. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, any of you that spent time uh, watching Indiana Jones definitely remembers the Ark of the Covenant. It's kind of interesting. You can see a picture of it here. It measured about 45 inches long, about 27 inches high, and about 27 inches uh, wide. So it wasn't a huge thing, about you know, four feet uh, long, and so not, not massive. But in that ark was held a, a couple of different things. But this ark was intended to, to be a representation, a, a picture of the very presence of God, where His glory was manifested in that ark. Now our minds don't necessarily uh, are able to wrap around what that necessarily means. What does it look like to have the presence of God? We weren't there. We don't know exactly how that unfolded, but pretty unbelievable uh, sight. If you remember the Old Testament description of the ark, even when someone touched it inappropriately, they immediately died. So this was something held in very high regard, and God took it very uh, seriously. It was pictured, I'm sorry, it had right on top of it, it had what was called the mercy seat, which was basically a a set apart top of it where sacrifices would be made or actually blood poured on top of the mercy seat. And then it had two cherubim on top that were made out of solid gold, kind of as a overlay you see in that picture. The lid was called the mercy seat, as I said, and it was a small space where man was able to come before Almighty God. We'll describe more what that looks like in the next section here, but basically, it was a a very ornate piece filled then with a number of different items. Inside of the ark was a golden jar of manna. Kind of think about that, just another gold piece inside of a gold piece. So obviously a lot of precious metals uh, used in this area of or place of worship. It was holding manna, as you would probably guess, representing God's provision to us. Another thing mentioned was interesting was Aaron's staff that had budded. You might remember the story of that, that demonstrated life coming from nothing. This picture of what Jesus will ultimately offer as bringing life from nothing. Then the tablets of the covenant. You can take a wild guess what that's talking about. Well, yeah, that's talking about the the 10 commandments where, where God literally wrote the instructions on these tablets for Moses to direct the people. And that representing the perfect standard that every single one of them and us would be accountable for. It's a huge deal, obviously, the standard that ultimately only Jesus Christ has ever in the history of mankind, the only one who has met his, that perfect standard. This says something at the end of this. So it says, above them were the cherubim and the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So we describe those. But it says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. You might wonder why the author's like, well, why can't we talk about that? Why don't we discuss that? I've seen, read a number of descriptions of why that would be the one that makes the most sense with the direction of this passage is the author's goal was not to glorify these ornate pieces, but instead to point to the supremacy of worship through Jesus Christ. So he moves briefly through these descriptions and then he gets on to the rituals that took place inside of the tabernacle. So that's what we're gonna look at next. Hopefully you're holding on okay. Stay the course, we'll, we'll get to some cool application in a little bit. All right, so continuing in verse six, it says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. All right, we'll pause there. So this is talking about it, even mentions that, talks about the ritual duties, the responsibilities of the priest in these rooms. And it describes the first room that only the regular priests, not the high priest, only the regular priests were able to go to. The high priest could obviously go through there uh, as well, but ultimately we'll talk about his role in a moment. But if you just think about that, how this setup was there. And you might remember that first picture that I showed there, how it was set up is first you had outside in the courtyard, the sacrifices that the people made for the atonement of their sin. Basically, anybody could bring any time a sacrifice to that courtyard, and you saw the 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 big uh, altar there that was a, a spot for animal sacrifice, and it was intended to be a sacrifice for any known sin. So you imagine that space would be a pretty uh, popular spot because if anyone was like, we are present day today, sin is a regular part of our life. Obviously not something we're proud of, but something that uh, gets a grip on us. And so this this area would be a regular. You think about it from morning till night. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago where the priest's work would never be finished. So the priest had the responsibility of approving the appropriateness of the sacrifice, so often it would have been a, a lamb that was brought before as a as an offering, as a, brought before an altar, because it was a very uh, common a, uh, animal there in that group of in that time period with these people. And so you think about that. I I remember. A number of years back, back in Chicago, the teaching pastor, he did something kind of dramatic. I wish I had the opportunity to do that now. He actually brought on stage with him when he was talking about the sacrificial system. I don't remember what passage in particular he was in, but he brought this cute little baby lamb up there. He had it kind of in one arm, kind of tucked in there. And then he had in his other hand, he had a big old dagger we're like, what in the world? <laughs> Did this pastor just lose his mind? Like what, what's about to happen here? But he obviously didn't take the, the lamb's life. But what he reminded us of was the brutality of this whole event. So often as Christ followers, we like to skirt past this uh, aspect of the Old Testament. Any conversation about animal sacrifice, we try to downplay it. But this was a huge piece of the atonement for sin. You might wonder, I know I've wondered this before is like, what was the what was the purpose of that? Why why in the world would God have put that in place? It seems it seems kind of violent, but if you think about that, you think about the innocence of a lamb and you think about the the struggle and its resistance before having its life taken and how bloody and miserable that would have been, it was reminding them of their sin and what was necessary to deal with their sin. The seriousness of their sin, because what do we do? We tend to downplay sin. We try to belittle, we get numb to it. This was a physical response to their sin, the devastating effects that their sin had. They wanted a visual way for them to remember that. Think about what a traumatic thing that would be. First off, taking the life of this poor innocent lamb and as a, as a sacrifice and then breaking it apart on the altar. I mean, when you think about the graphic nature of that and probably the most frustrating part of this process was knowing in the back of your mind that you were going to be back there probably sooner than you'd prefer with your next sacrifice. It was was something that left the conscience that was never, ever settled. It was never solved. It was always meant to be a temporary solution, but it never actually dealt with man's guilt and with man's shame. In fact, it may have only amplified that instead. So, the priest had the responsibility first to determine the appropriate sacrifices, but then it says that he his ritual duties. And his ritual duties were also inside of the temple. A couple different responsibilities that the that the priest would have in there. Is one was keeping the the lamp stand that I mentioned earlier, making sure that it was consistently uh, uh, on fire, that the that the that the that the wicks were tended to, and that the oil was at a place where it would keep up with uh, having a, a flame. It was the only light that was provided inside of there. You imagine that would take a, a certain degree of responsibility. of like, man, we got to stay on top of this. If you've ever been camping and having to tend for a fire, you're like, man, this actually takes some work. Now, imagine this, and uh, you're responsible for, these, uh, for, for keeping that lit 24-7. The second thing that was in there, you might remember, was the altar of incense. It mentions that as well here, that the altar of incense needed something on it that was giving incense, something that was burning. What they used for the altar of incense is they would take uh, they would take the, uh, they would take the uh, leftover coals or the still hot coals from the sacrifices that the people were making for their sins out in the courtyard. And that would be on the altar of incense. So the, the smell of sacrificed animals would be just outside of the curtain going into the Holy of Holies. So they consistently had to do that as the high priest talked about that last week, that their their job was never done. Kind of like the mom with laundry. This was a responsibility, keeping this going, keeping the, the fire lit, keeping the incense going. And then the other thing, what was the third thing that was in there was that big table with bread on it. They had to make sure that they had fresh bread. They couldn't just run to Panera. So I imagine part of the priest's job was not just uh, the sacrifice of animals. There was also some, some bread baking. So kind of a unique uh, variety of responsibilities that they had. Then we're told there, but into the verse 7, but into the second, only the high priest goes. What's it talking about? Into that second room that we already described, the Holy of Holies. And it says, but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Let me explain that just briefly. So first off, the high priest, before going in to deal with the uh, unknown sins of the people. You think about what that is. That's sins that people weren't aware that they did. So they covered their own sins with the altar outside, with the sacrifices outside. But then once a year on the day of atonement, that's what it was called, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he'd go in first sacrificing for his sins and then sacrificing the, for the unknown sins of the people. Maybe something that they missed, something they didn't think about found it interesting what was expected of the high priest. For the high priest's sacrifice, the first thing was for his own sins. And he was responsible for the purchase and then the sacrifice of a bull. So a male uh, cow being sacrificed for his sins. I do find it interesting that God chose to take the, the most holy person in that group of, of people or the stated most holy person. He's like, that person's gonna need a, a bull for a sacrifice. It's a good reminder for any of us that are in uh, leadership uh, roles within the church that, hey, we're, we're no better or no different than anybody else. So he had to take the, the sacrifice of a bull and then bring in the, the blood offering of that bull was the first offering that he would make. And it was, we're told that he would sprinkle that right on top uh, of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And so that was the first thing that he did was the, the blood of the bull and making sure, you imagine this was a, a pretty intense moment for the high priest, only going into this dark room. There's no mention of light in there. Only going into this dark room once a year. He's going in. I talked about it a few weeks back, most likely with bells on. And, and, and so if they didn't hear the bell, and they had a, a rope tied to his ankle so they could pull this guy out. This was a, a risky endeavor because he knew in the back of his mind, if he didn't have an appropriate sacrifice, he would not survive touching the Ark of the Covenant. he would not not survive that. He wasn't going to make it. So not exactly a communing with God, not exactly an intimate time with God, but instead a a fear-filled time with God. Secondly, after he had sacrificed the bull, put the blood of the bull, then he had two goats outside that were prepared. And goat number one would be sacrificed and goat number two would survive. So the goat number one was brought, was outside, was sacrificed. And then the blood of that goat was brought and poured on the mercy seat. And what was that, uh, that blood for? we already saw it described here, for the unintentional sins of the people. So that was the second sacrifice. First sacrifice for himself and then second for the sins of the people. He he poured that on uh, the, the mercy seat as well. I love that that's the description there is the mercy seat because any of this was only possible because of God's mercy. Then after coming out from that, I imagine... Uh, A big exhale after surviving that whole experience. Then he would take the, the, the second goat, he would lay hands on the goat and then confess. I don't know how he knew all the sins of the people, but it says confessing the sins of the people on that goat. On that goat, I imagine that was an extended time of just confessing, 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 bringing awareness of the extent of sin that the people had. And then interesting thing that they did with that second goat. They they didn't put that goat to death. Instead, they took that goat out into the wilderness and they set it free. They, they, They wished it luck and sent it on its way. Both of those goats fulfilling a significant and important picture Both goats were a picture of Jesus, one paying the penalty and one setting us free from the weight of sin. Propitiation, as Josh taught us a number of weeks back, and pardon. So one paying the penalty and one being set free from the weight of sin. So I talk about this idea of conscience and finally on this day of atonement, every 12 months, you're just like, all right, my known sins are covered and my unknown sins are covered. There would have been a huge collective sigh in the camp. There's an exhale. All right, I finally have a clear conscience. Until what? Until you sin again. Obviously, you can begin to see the shortcomings with this system. The shortcomings are explained in this last section, the last couple verses, verse 8. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Let me pause there for some explanation. The first thing that we see is that the Holy Spirit is wanting to teach us something in this. The picture that he's wanting to explain to us, what does it say that the Holy Spirit wants to indicate? It says, it wants to indicate that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. What is that saying? What does he mean by that? He's reminding us of the end goal of his audience. He's reminding us of the end goal of all of of mankind is to have access and relationship with God again what had been severed back in the garden, needed to be desperately restored. But what is he telling us? He's saying you won't get there until that first section is gone. That first section, and you're like, well, what first section? What is he? What needs to be gone before you can have access? This whole pattern of sacrifice that they were living under wasn't it was always intended to be a temporary solution, not a long-term fix. Until that was gotten rid of, they would never have complete and full access to Almighty God. You think about it, for all practical purposes, man had no access to God. Think about the system that was in place. It was kind of an exercise in futility. The only one that had access before Almighty God was who? What did we learn already? The only one that had access to Almighty God was the high priest. And how much access did he have before Almighty God? Once a year, and it was for a very brief moment in time. It would have been most likely rushed and nervous and get out of there as quick as possible. That doesn't sound like real access when the normal priest or in the outer section, still getting warmer, but not close. And then the rest of the people, the hundreds of thousands of people out in the courtyard, making sacrifices, atonement, uh, taking the life of animals for the penalty for their, their sin. I wouldn't say that the original covenant had solved the problem of access with God. What did it also not solve? The second thing It says this arrangement, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices that are offered, what what can it do? It says, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's what I've been alluding to through this whole passage. It never dealt with the guilt in the conscience. It never actually dealt with the core issue, which was man's sin. It never addressed the real problem. So two things that will never work or never happen with human effort of sacrifice and, and media, trying to uh, go before God based on our own performance. Two things that will never happen. One, you'll never draw close to God. Two, you'll never have a clear conscience until it's dealt with in a permanent manner but only with food and drink and various washings. He's saying, hey, just the normal cleansing stuff that's part of daily life in the camp, that's the only thing that can be dealt with from a man's perspective. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. What is that saying? Until the time of reformation. The word reformation actually means to make straight until this whole broken system is made straight. It's interesting because these first 10 verses in chapter 9, there's absolutely not, there, there's zero mention of Jesus Christ. There's no mention because it's describing what was. And in next week's section, we get a, a picture of, man, the Reformation. That we were finally waiting for the, where it's finally made straight, where it's finally solved, where these dilemmas of our conscience, of our guilt, of our connection with God are finally solved in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but in my study this week, and there was a a lot of different things reading, it made me, if anything, so grateful that we're not here at this church lined up with running out into the parking lot, everybody carrying in a lamb today to, 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 to church this week. Nobody's there with a, a, a sacrifice that they're wanting to atone for their own sins. But instead, we're able, because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, to enter in, to be present with God, to worship him, as the New Testament describes in spirit and in truth, that should compel us even looking through sections like this that might seem kind of boring, but to be reminded of, man, I am so thankful for what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this section of scripture and reminding us maybe of some things we don't give a lot of thought to. The old covenant, how things were before your rescue plan was played out. We're so thankful for that, that established and painted the picture of the the separation. Man, that was a pretty graphic way for us to understand the, the death that our sin brought. For us to understand the necessity of a perfect sacrifice for payment, for us to understand that we could never approach you apart from your sacrifice. God, I pray that these reminders would really allow us to one, to draw to you, to draw close to you, even in the week ahead. And two, for us to be set free from the guilt and shame that wants to sneak in when we go back to a works-based mentality. For us to be set free from that and to realize, to be able to bask in the forgiveness that your work on the cross offers us. God, we thank you for that. Now we celebrate that even in song. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.
1: i oh. Just the only one who could ever say.
0: Well, you made it. That was a little bit intense, a little bit more extended version of description, but I don't know. Hopefully some of you are interested in this like I am, where you're just learning about how it used to be. Man, I'll tell you what, it makes you so grateful for the way it is. I pray that that compels your worship in the week ahead. God bless you. Have an amazing day.